Welcome back, friends. To our listeners, if you're listening on the radio, you're listening at 11 a.m. on Fridays on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And if not, you're listening for free wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and tell your friends about us. We're at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. So today we are revisiting the case of Australian Cardinal Pell. Last week, his conviction, his conviction for sex abuse allegedly committed in the 90s was upheld by an appellate court. And you may recall that we spoke, we spoke to an old friend of his, uh, someone who knows him very well, George Weigel, a few weeks ago. And um, he went a long way in convincing Andrea and I, and, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners, as to the implausibility of uh, what's been alleged against him. A terrible crime, but implausible. Well, and Gracie... Um there have been very few people who have written, and, and they've written really well and very profound, and, and Mr. Weigel's been one of them. And another person that's been one of them is our one of our guests that's going to come on. And, and I think it's really important for all people of goodwill, and especially for Catholics, to study this case, to know the facts, and not to jump to the conclusions that there's support uh, behind this conviction. Well, and at the same time... Uh Catholics, people in general, are rightfully horrified by what has happened over and over and over again. There has been terrible sexual abuse by clerics, cover-ups by bishops, but this doesn't negate the fact that every every case is an individual case. Every life is, is individual and should be uh, approached very carefully, especially when we're talking about somebody's entire life and reputation. Absolutely. Anyway, our first chat, our first guest is joining us by phone. And he is Phil Lawler, the editor of Catholic World News, which is the first English-language news service on the Internet. He attended Harvard and did graduate work at the University of Chicago. And he previously served as the director of studies for the Heritage Foundation, the editor of Crisis Magazine. It goes on and on. Welcome, Mr. Lawler, to our show. Thank you for having me. Well, Mr. Lawler, we are both so thrilled that you took the time out of your schedule to come and speak with us. You have been one of the most cogent writers, in my opinion, writing about the case. Um, and, and I thought it might be helpful to start off our conversation just giving our listeners, especially if they're not familiar with the details, a little overview, kind of fly over, about the allegations against Cardinal Pell and where we are in the process, where what's the procedural posture of, of the case against him, and then we can kind of go from there. If, if that's helpful, it would be sure. good for us. Uh, sure, with the with the caveat that I'm no expert on the Australian legal system. Um, it's the, like the, the American Australian system, courts aren't either, apparently. So no. <laughs> that, that would seem to be the case here. It, well, Cardinal Pell is, as, as you said earlier, is accused of having molested two um, boys. They were boys at the time. They're grown now, back in the 90s, um, when he was Archbishop of Melbourne. Um, there are two boys involved, one of them uh, now deceased, uh, who had said no such thing happened to him. So there's one accuser, and that accuser is the only prosecution witness in this case, or the only witness presenting any testimony against Cardinal Pell. He says that Cardinal Pell molested him in the sacristy of the cathedral in Melbourne twice um, after Mass. On one of those occasions, the cathedral in Melbourne wasn't open. It was closed for renovations. So that that has to be dismissed. 
and that has to reflect a bit on the credibility of the witness you would think um, there are a whole I, I won't go into everything now I can give you more details as we go along but there are more than 20 witnesses who came forward to say not only that this didn't happen but it that it was literally physically impossible for the cardinal to have been alone with a boy in the sacristy at that time so you have this overwhelming evidence that it couldn't have happened and the only the only evidence that it did happen is the testimony of one witness who said nothing about it for years and years and came forward only after the police began looking for complaints against the Cardinal. And isn't it and true, Mr. Miss, sorry to interrupt, Mr. Lauder, but isn't it true that uh, Cardinal Pell has no other accusations against him in a very long and uh, active career in the church? That's true, and that's really uh, something, you know, I have been pursuing stories about sexual abuse in the church for 25 years now. Mm. And I've seen a lot of ugliness, and I have been disappointed a lot of times with clerics who I thought were innocent, and as, after studying, I realized they, they were guilty. And in most of those cases, you find evidence that there's not just one victim, there are multiple victims. And for a man to do something as brazen as what the Cardinal is said to have done, to, to essentially rape a boy in a public room, uh, where anybody with the door open, anybody can come in at any time. That would be the only person I could imagine doing that is a repeat offender. Mm-hmm. And Someone who, who had practice, right? And who uh, yeah, was brazen. Yeah, pretty way. far down, the, down, the, down in the sewers of child abuse. That, I just can't imagine that that would be a one-time offense would be something as gross as this. Mr. Lawler, I was um, kind of doing a compare and contrast of, of the, the case against um, Cardinal Pell and the facts that we have been subjected to about um, the sordid situation of Mr. McCarrick. And I was wondering, um, these two allegations are strikingly similar, right? The, the, the allegations against Cardinal Pell in the cathedral in Melbourne and the, the one of the first to come forward regarding altar boy in St. Patrick's and curiously both are called St. Patrick's right and and I was wondering um, they shock the conscience both of them and why yeah. should we believe that the two are different why should we believe that one is true and one is false and and maybe you could explain kind of and give us a little bit of a uh, Texture to why why we should we should see the di- the difference between the two allegations. Well, the difference lies with the witnesses. As I say, in this case involving Cardinal Pell, there is a grand total of one witness, and that's the accuser. And in all of these cases, it's usually a case of you know he said she said, or there's the accuser and the accused, and nobody else is is an eyewitness. There's no videotape. In the case of McCarrick, there were multiple, multiple Mm -hmm. reports. In the case of Pell, there's just the one. In the case of McCarrick, there was a whispering campaign. Uh, It was common knowledge. I I knew about it, oh, almost 20 years ago. Hmm. Uh, By hearsay, I had no evidence. 
but I had heard about it because people in Washington talked about it and seminarians talked about it in Newark. Um, it, it was not an isolated case. That's the whole point with McCarrick is that it was it was an ongoing scandal over a period of years and a lot of people know about it. And, and it's really a black mark on uh, a lot of people that they failed to take any action when they heard about it. And so, Mr. Luller, um, the case uh, of Cardinal Pell, you allege, is a, a in a great article you wrote in the catholicculture.org, the Pell case, Australia's Dreyfus affair, or Dreyfus, I'm, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but uh, you allege that this is a black mark against Australia, much in the way of that, that uh, French affair of Alfred Dreyfus. Can right. you explain? Well, yes, in the Dreyfus Affair, which was, uh, I think, from 1896 to 1904, there was a French military officer who was convicted of treason. He was innocent. He was set up. He was framed. Eventually, the facts came out um, that someone had betrayed French interests, French military secrets, and um, Dreyfus was a convenient target because he was a Jew. And so the case against him played into some anti-Semitic prejudices. Um, and he was, he was, I guess, an unsympathetic character to a lot of people. A lot of people wanted very badly for him to be guilty. And when military leaders came up with evidence showing that Dreyfus was not the culprit, that someone else whose name I've forgotten had betrayed the secrets, they covered up that evidence because they were so anxious first to have that convenient victim a jew who did not excite public sympathy uh, a member of a minority and second if they admitted that dreyfus was innocent a whole lot of powerful people were going to look bad because they'd been screaming for his scalp for so long that, I think, is what's happening in Australia, is that Australia, there is a huge public outroar, outrage, about sexual abuse, and it's justified. And they're looking for a victim, and Pell is the most prominent Catholic mm-hmm. in Australia, and he's a very convenient victim. He's not popular. Uh, and, and so, at this point, to admit that he was tried, um, that the prosecution went after him aggressively, that he was tried and found guilty wrongly, that would be an indictment of the Australian judicial system. And I think that's that's the unfortunate reality that weighs against his appeal now. You mentioned, you mentioned in your article that it might be because Cardinal Pell is unapologetically Orthodox, or call him conservative, you say, in quotation marks. Do you think that that's driving uh, some of this animus against Cardinal Pell? I'm sure it is, because he was sure. very unpopular. Um, he was unpopular within the church because this uh, it's a, it is a liberal church in Australia primarily. He came into Melbourne. He made changes. He shook people up. He rattled cages. He made enemies. He cleaned out... Uh, the faculty of the seminary, a lot of priests were unhappy with him. That unhappiness was conveyed through the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, he And he's, he is, um, by nature, 
not the sort of man who uh, who avoids conflict. I mean, he was hmm. he was an outstanding football player. Uh, he's a big, strong man who uh, is he's aggressive. He's unapologetic. So, yeah, there was an, there was a tremendous animus against him. It's also instructive to to know that the police in Melbourne have disclosed that they started looking for evidence against Cardinal Pell before they had a complaint. Now that's that's indication of a very strange sort of prosecutorial prosecutor yeah, behavior. That doesn't seem the way things normally go, does it? No. Look for the crime it, before you have evidence. Yeah, that that shows that he was a target. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of reasons why he might have been a target. And, I mean, I don't want to go too far into conspiracy theories, but but he was a target. Let me remind our listeners that we're talking to Phil Lawler from CatholicCulture.org about the the sad case of Cardinal Pell. Uh, uh Go ahead, Andrea. Mr. Lawler, this is Andrea, and I am a lawyer, although I did civil work uh, in the U.S., and I'm not an incredible expert, but I've done some some looking into the difference between our two systems. And and as an American, um, especially in the last few decades, we're very, very focused and aware of the protections that we have in place for criminal defendants, right? And they're built in place to support the notion that you're innocent until proven guilty. And, and they're still... An ethic, although I think it's waning, and, and I hope that we can speak a little bit more about that in the second segment. But an ethic in the U.S. that um, our criminal justice system is there to pursue the truth and to not convict the innocent. What I found, which was interesting, is Australia is slightly different in the deference given to the government, to the state, to the prosecution. And I was I was struck by that in light of how... What seems to be they just keep beating a dead horse. You know, there was a, 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 a maybe you could speak a little bit about the first hung jury trial and the second trial that resulted in a conviction and, and why that is probative of of this being an kind of unstable conviction. Sure. Uh, one thing I do know about the Australian system is that their standard for conviction is the same as ours, that the prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused is guilty. And in this case, it's, it's just impossible to say that it has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. You, you might begin to make the case that the defense hadn't proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the cardinal was innocent because there could be the slightest flicker of a possibility that the charges are true but it's not the defense that bears the burden of responsibility of uh, the burden of proof it's the prosecution and they didn't fulfill it now he went to trial um the trial the first trial resulted in a hung jury the report is that the jury voted 10 to 2 for acquittal and then the prosecution chose to um, take the case to trial again a second time and on the second occasion they got a conviction now if that conviction was on a 12 to nothing vote then we have over two trials a vote of what is it 20 
22, what am I getting? Uh, 18 to 10. <laughs> I'm not math, wrong, I'm not. 12 to 10. Did you ask 12 to 10. 12 to 10. 12 Mental to 10. math is it's very not. difficult. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, it, it's Friday. It's um, 12 to 10, which is, that's not overwhelming. You know, that, yeah. that's not a route. And then it was interesting to me, he went to an appeals court, and I didn't realize the appeals court was a panel of three judges, mm-hmm. just three. And there the vote was two to one. So, I mean, there are no routes here. When the ca- when the case is presented, even even at the appeals level, where I assume that the court leans toward the jury's verdict uh, regarding the fact, uh, even at that level, there was a very cogent dissent. So, it, you bring up Mr. Lawler, you bring up the dissent uh, at the at the appeals at the at the appeal level, and it, isn't it true that there were, as you mentioned, three judges and one dissented, and that mm-hmm. dissenting judge wrote a very interesting, very long uh, explanation of why exactly he felt that the case, that the uh, prosecution hadn't proved his case. He didn't come out so far as to say that he believed that the cardinal is innocent, but I think he gave a lot of great reasons for why the prosecution hadn't done its job in proving that Cardinal Pell had uh, was was guilty beyond all doubt. That's right. He, and I think his focus was on, um, now at the appeals level, um, the majority in the appeals court was saying it was not unreasonable for the jury in the trial to believe the accuser. And I think mm-hmm. that the dissenting judge, the thrust of his argument was that, okay, it's not unreasonable to accept the accuser's testimony, but it has to be weighed against the other mm-hmm. testimony. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's, the accuser isn't the Trump hand. He's one witness. And um, when you weigh it against a very substantial mountain of testimony saying that it doesn't hold water, then it doesn't hold water. Uh, so I think that was the thrust of his argument. Well, there's a very Certainly that's how I read it. There's a very interesting article that I I think you you'd cited in some of your work. Um, it's written by an, a Notre Dame law professor, Gerald Bradley, and it's right. in the the Catholic Register. And um, Professor Bradley is just an incredible, uh, smart, bright. Um, faithful Catholic, and he comes from the perspective of a criminal prosecutor and and highlights some of the problems, legal problems, that give some sort of hope, I guess, and optimism that even at the next go-around to the the Australian highest court, there can be a chance to revisit how much weight was given to the complainant, the accuser, and, and and I think you touched upon this, Mr. Lawler, that credibility really needs to be assessed in light of everything. It isn't just when someone takes the stand in that moment, but it's after taking into account all of the questions and all of the the, the problems that have been raised by the defense. The, the challenge and the, the real sad thing and travesty that I see in just reviewing things is that um, it looks like the burden was put on the defense as opposed to yeah. the burden being put on the prosecution. And that takes our understanding of justice and, and criminal prosecution and turns it on its head. 
That's exactly right. And that's why, as I say, I think the, the fundamental problem here is that Cardinal Pell has been a target since the beginning of this whole case. So it wasn't the usual case where if you're accused of robbing the bank, uh, the prosecution has to prove that you robbed the bank. You don't have to prove that you didn't. Mm-hmm. That's uh, right. But in this in this <laughs> case, there's, there's such a clamor. Put him in jail. He robbed the bank. Uh, that uh, the ordinary burden on the prosecution was, was, in a sense, waived. Now, there's... Gracie and I are both moms, and and we're of sons <laughs> of sons and daughters, <laughs> and, daughters. and super we're fierce moms, um, and would do anything to protect our children and, the, and other people's children, and and so our instincts first whenever you hear about abuse is is one of protection, um, mm-hmm. but at the same time there's and so we don't want to diminish at all, and I don't think anyone on this caller or, or any of our listeners want to diminish the real need to keep our children safe. Um, and that's Absolutely. something that whenever whenever we question this, and I've had uh, Twitter conversations with with victims, and, and, it's, and I think defending um, Cardinal Pell in no way diminishes our um, horror for what victims have suffered. And, and I think that that's worth really putting out there. This is not a defense and ignoring the true suffering of, of people who have, have suffered abuse. Um, but at the same time, their interests aren't served by throwing a, an innocent man in jail. I absolutely agree with you. And just to, to underline that, I'm, I'm also a dad. I have children. I have grandchildren. Um, I'm also a journalist who has, as I said earlier, spent 25 yeah. years on this and and my record will show i have been very very rough on mm-hmm. bishops who cover up abuse bishops who who commit abuse i have been calling for mass resignations i believe a whole lot of bishops should be in jail because of their complicity in this it's not mm-hmm. as i'm it's not as if i'm soft on this issue yeah it's just in this case uh if you want to criticize cardinal pell for not responding when he heard complaints of abuse by priests under his jurisdiction, I'll listen to you. Uh, mm-hmm. And in fact, he said himself that he made mistakes and he has regrets about how he handled complaints. But this is a complaint about him. Mm-hmm. And that complaint should be governed by the facts. It doesn't matter whether you like him or not. It doesn't matter whether he was a good bishop or not. It doesn't matter whether he's a friendly guy or not. It matters whether he's innocent or guilty. Mm-hmm. And it and it doesn't matter the, how how much pathos the the accuser brings to to the testifying, right? How much pathos and how much drama and how how uh, how how much he can convey to the jury about how he feels. And, no, and this is, to me, this is to me how it sounds. Uh-huh. This is one of the difficulties in a lot of these cases is that um, people who have been abused are damaged. Mm-hmm. They're psychologically damaged by the abuse. And a lot of times what that means is they're not particularly good witnesses. Um, and that's a problem that prosecutors often have, that uh, these are people who've led troubled lives, um, they might be emotional. They might be overdramatic. 
Um, and then you have other problems that, they, that, particularly if you're dealing with something that occurred years ago, they might have faulty memories. Um, so there are all sorts of problems with the prosecution. And to say that this particular witness in the Pell case doesn't hold up doesn't necessarily mean he's a liar. It may be that he has other problems, whether they're memory problems, uh, whether they're fantasy problems. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, that music but- that music is sign that we have to go to break, but we'll be right back to talk to Phil Lawler about the sad case of Australia's Cardinal Pell. This is your host, hostess, your host or your hostess at the Catholic Association's Conversations with Consequences. If you're listening on the radio, you're listening to the Guadalupe Radio Network on 11 a.m. at Friday on Fridays. And if you are listening uh, not on the radio, then you're listening to our podcast. You can uh, download our podcasts or subscribe to them at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. You can tell your friends about us and... On the podcast, on our podcast page, we have lots of great bonus uh, episodes that, that we try to keep on. We try to keep on top of the news because at the Catholic Association, we are uh, lay. We are a group of lay Catholics, lay women, who are trying to uh, be a force for everything good that's Catholic, uh, and enliven our culture, um, make our culture better, more beautiful, more noble. And uh, we'd love for you to join us at the Catholic Association. I'm joined by my good friend and, ho- and co-hostess, <laughs> our co-host, Andrea. Is that not said anymore? I'm not supposed to use the word hostess, right? I actually feel like one of those hostess cupcakes. Like you're okay. one of the... They keep changing the language on me. Ding I feel like I just cookie. learned English, and now I have to relearn it. <laughs> so... Andrea Picciari Bayer is the legal eagle of the Catholic Association, and she's in D.C., and I'm in Miami in my closet. I'm I'm uh, I'm very happy we have electricity. We probably won't for much longer. There's a hurricane barreling our way. And Mr. One, our wonderful guest, Mr. Phil Lawler, is uh, on the phone. Welcome back, Mr. Lawler. Uh, thanks for having me again. <laughs> so yep. we're talking about the sad case of Cardinal Pell, and uh, we were sort of delving a little deeply there into the law and what makes a credible witness and how that's going for Cardinal Pell. And perhaps maybe we can kind of move forward and talk a little bit about the appellate process, the recent appellate decision that was handed down last week, and what's next for Cardinal Pell and Australia. Um, Mr. Lawler, maybe you could kind of get all of our listeners up to speed on what happened last week and where things are headed. Well, after um, his conviction on sex abuse charges, Cardinal Pell appealed. Um, The appeals court announced its decision this past week and denied his appeal. So as of now, he faces several years in jail. Hmm. Um, He is appealing to Australia's high court and highest court, the equivalent of our Supreme Court. And I don't know, I'm afraid I don't know when that would be heard. So uh, that's, that's where the case stands now. 
At the end of the last segment, Mr. Lawler, you were you were very emphatic about all the work you've done this terrible scourge of sexual abuse in the church and how you've never pulled any punches and and you've called for mass resignations and you've been very vocal about the responsibility of, of higher church prelates, right? The, church, the prelates of the church, uh, their responsibility that they bear in this matter of not having not having had their finger on the pulse of things and, and even worse, covering up, moving priests around. Uh, but you feel... I, I, I just wanted to bring that up again for our listeners because I think it's important when we talk about defending Cardinal Pell uh, as, as a possi- possibly, very possibly, an innocent victim of a witch hunt uh, that all of us also acknowledge, people like you who are maintaining Cardinal Pell's possible innocence, that this is, you're, you're coming from a position of, of yes, being completely intolerant. That. I appreciate that. It, 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 this is a witch, a witch hunt, but in this case, there are witches. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, it's just uh, Cardinal Pell. I don't think he's one of them, and in in any case, this this particular incident, I'm fully convinced he's innocent. You know, Mr. Lawler, there. I feel like sometimes in this situation, I I'm wearing two hats. One is as a faithful Catholic, and another is as uh, a member of the bar, right, and and really committed to the rule of law and defending our system of uh, justice, and and the importance of having the rule of law in our other brother and sister countries. Um, you know, I lived out of the country where there was incredible corruption in South America, and you could really see the suspicion that people had of their government and of the judicial system because of that corruption. Yeah. And um, this case is a challenge, right? Because Australia isn't a rogue nation in our minds. It shouldn't be, but it's starting to look like it's gone off the rails. And um, both in the investigation of Cardinal Pell and in, in the process of this case. Perhaps you could shed some light on what you think the significance of a country like Australia um, losing its its marbles <laughs> in, in the in the prosecution of of someone uh, you know which uh, without having foundation continuing to go forward and what that does for the stability of the rule of law in in their country. It's devastating. It's even it's really terribly dismaying to me. I've never been to Australia. Uh, I'm an American, but we do have, we do share the Anglo-American system of law, and and this just looks like a pretty clear violation, and that's why the Dreyfus affair mm-hmm. occurred to me as a historic uh, comparison, because there you have a country in France which is uh, does not say have the same legal systems that we have, but you still you think of it as an advanced country, not as a corrupt country. And there, an innocent man was railroaded, and the government uh, persisted in railroading him and covering up the evidence that would have exonerated him. It was it was the same sort of situation where the the whole resources of the government were used to prosecute uh, uh, 
an innocent man and then to maintain his prosecution i mean eventually it fell apart eventually he was exonerated and and given back his commission but uh, but after just a horrendous episode for the whole country that it, it helped to tear france apart and i think australia could be looking at the same sort of situation which is what what really worries me about cardinal pell's appeal because as i say if the supreme court says he's innocent then what does that tell you about the prosecutors who went after him so vigorously, mm-hmm. about the trials, the two trials that he underwent, and about the appeals court? Well, uh, and the confidence that saying, Australians can have in jury verdicts. Right, because his appeal, as I understand it, the grounds for his appeal is that the verdict is unreasonable. So you're saying that the courts have, have reached uh, and an appeals court has affirmed an unreasonable verdict. That's very destabilizing and demoralizing if you are relying on your nation to give you the protection of law. Mm-hmm. In Fran- you mentioned that in France, after the Dreyfus affair, there was a lot of unrest that lasted for many years and had far-reaching compli- co- complications and, and consequences uh, because of the lack of confidence that people felt in, in the rule of law. And I, I was wondering, I was thinking that all of us looking over at Australia uh, are starting to think that this kind of thing could happen here because there appears to be a growing tendency to believe that anyone who brings an accusation of sexual abuse has to be believed. And we are seeing this here sort of on a social level. I don't think we've seen it on a legal level, uh, as in the case of Cardinal Pell, but we're definitely seeing it on a social level that people can be, their lives can be wrecked, uh, their, uh, their financial, uh, social, uh, their jobs, everything can be taken away from them because of one accusation of sexual abuse. Yes, and we've also seen the beginnings of, uh, well, we've seen some cracks in the foundation of the American mm-hmm. um, people's confidence in the rule of law. And actually, uh, one very significant case that all your listeners will <laughs> be aware of is the Jeffrey Epstein case. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's where, right. Uh, there's a, which, of course, again, again involves sexual abuse, and um, an awful lot of people question whether he killed himself. There's an awful lot of skepticism about, you know, there's a sense of who is who is covering up evidence of what. And you ask yourself, who would you trust to conduct the investigation into this whole mess at hmm. this point? Because... It starts to reflect badly on the mm-hmm. prosecutors, on the Justice Department, on, any, on everybody. Mm-hmm. And you, it starts to erode the confidence that people feel and should feel in the justice under law. Mr. Lawler, I was wondering if we could kind of pull back out of the, the criminal prosecution in Australia of this case and really think and, and speak a little bit about the implications for the church. Um, my one really... Uh, great sadness in all of this is while Cardinal Pell has been incarcerated, he's been uh, forbidden from celebrating the Mass. And yeah. and that is a grave injury to the Church, in my opinion, um, and, and and really is it cause, causes harm to the body of Christ. And, and I was wondering if perhaps, especially given your experience and your background looking at uh, abuse by members of the clergy, what does this case do for advancing um, the effort to root out the rod in the church? Um, is it 
Is it going to be um, ignored? Is it undermining our ability to clean house? Um, and and what does it do for the the moral authority of the church, in your opinion? I think that well, there are several different ways to look at it. From what I've heard, I don't know the man personally, but I know friends of Cardinal Pell who tell me that he is bearing up extraordinarily well, uh, that he is he's uh, serene and prayerful, and he believes that he's suffering for the church, and he's offering up that suffering. So if that's the case, I have no doubt, there's no doubt in my mind that spiritual benefits are being won. All of us who are praying for him are, are, are doing some good as well. Um, on, on a natural level, I'm, I don't see that it's, it's going to help. I'm afraid that, um, you know, we spoke earlier about a witch hunt. And I think, you know, you dance around and sing that the witch is dead, um, rather than looking around and seeing if there are any witches. Uh, and I, I'm afraid that the energy that should have gone into looking at the causes of the abuse crisis in Australia, instead, all that energy went into getting this one man and putting him behind bars. Mm-hmm. And also and solving, the, finding solutions, right? Finding solutions for the lack of yes, faithfulness you know, in, the, in the priesthood and, you know, and chastity. When he came to Melbourne early on as Archbishop of Melbourne, he instituted what's called the Melbourne Response, which was a series of programs to, to respond to sexual abuse. And they weren't perfect, but they were pretty good, and they were by far the best in Australia. So in a way, he was ahead of the game. I, I also said earlier that he wasn't perfect, and he's admitted as much, but he was he was ahead of the game as far as Australian bishops responding to sexual abuse by clerics there. So he shouldn't re- he really shouldn't have been the chosen target but he was and then there's there's one more factor that i don't think you can ignore um, he left australia eventually to become the secretary for the economy in at the vatican the first and only prelate to hold that job uh, and he was looking into economic corruption in rome and it was at the point where he was starting to rattle cages in Rome that the voices in Australia uh, accusing him began to be heard. And mm-hmm. I wonder if that's a coincidence, hmm. or I wonder if that's, infinite, if that's evidence of a different sort of corruption in the church that also should be rooted out. Well, you, you mentioned the Vatican. Mr. Lawler, and I think it's a very important question that is in a lot of people's minds. What does the Vatican do in the case that his appeal, his next appeal to the high court is rejected, for instance? What does the Vatican do in this case? What are the choices? There's a whole range of choices. There's no established uh, policy. Uh, I suppose he could be uh, stripped of his status as a cardinal. Uh, he he's already beyond retirement age, and although he has not been removed from his position at the Vatican, he's obviously he's on leave, and he's obviously not going to come back. Um, so uh, he he could be subject to further disgrace 
um, as far as his his role in the Vatican, the only way it changes is if he's exonerated and goes back to Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even without his portfolio in the Secretariat to the Economy, he would at least be be a force there once again. But isn't isn't there a chance that the Vatican could do their own internal investigation? And not come to the same conclusions as, as this Australian court, and then yeah. then what does the Vatican do? Uh, good question. Uh, thus far, the Vatican has been saying that it uh, relies on the Australian courts, and, and remarkably enough, Cardinal Pell has been saying the same thing that he has he has faith in the justice of the Australian court system, uh, and the uh, Aus- the Vatican has not begun in any investigation to the best of my knowledge so and um, well and it's very important I think that the church um, waits for the civil authorities to finish their process and and that's one of the the hopes that that all of us have and we should continue to pray for that the high court in Australia will rectify this um, one of the things that I was very struck by in general, the the work that you've written and, and other people like uh, George Weigel and the National Catholic Register have really um, pointed out the, the deficiencies in this conviction. But yesterday there was a, a terrible article from the National Catholic Reporter um, editorial staff and basically poo-pooing these concerns. And and I don't know if you had a, had a chance to to read that, but I think um, it's it's important that not just um, people who side with Cardinal Pell for his orthodoxy or uh, agree with him for his conservative uh, principles, but that all Catholics push hard against civil authorities that rush to convict because the accused is wearing a priestly collar or a cardinal's hat or whatever vestments, if they're Dominican robes, you know, that, that it's, 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 it's a moral obligation that we have to demand truth and yeah. and to question when there is a conclusion or a conviction that isn't based in truth. Yes, and to question ourselves when we say uh, if, if there's part of of human nature that when you don't like someone and you find yourself in opposition to someone, mm-hmm. you're all the more ready to believe that they're guilty of whatever bad things they're charged with. Mm-hmm. And I think it's probably a good thing for us to examine our own consciences and say, if this had been somebody that we disagreed with, if this had been someone on the other side of arguments within the church, would we be as willing to come to his defense? And I, I sure hope that in my case the answer was, is yes. I, I, I can't think of another case mm-hmm. where... And you're right. You're right, Mr. Lala. We should all question ourselves on that. That's a very good question. And thank you so much for joining us in Conversations with Consequences. It was a great pleasure to have you. Phil yes, Lawler. thank you so thank much. Thank, thank you, you for letting us. Myself. Thank you for helping us to understand this better. And uh, thank you to our listeners. We will be back after the break with Father Landry's weekly homily. the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience. Subscribe at thecatholicassociation.org. 
This week, as is customary, Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily on this coming Sunday's Gospel. Please stay tuned for Father Landry. This is Father Roger Landry, and I'm pleased once more to have the chance to enter with you into the consequential conversation the Lord Jesus wants to have with us this Sunday. He'll speak to us about a wedding banquet and say that when we're invited, we shouldn't take the place of honor, lest we lose it to a more distinguished guest, but to go to the lowest place so that the host will invite us to take a higher seat. Jesus here is doing far more than giving us advice on how to achieve the best seats at a wedding reception. His point was to teach us how to be exalted at the eternal wedding banquet in heaven, to which the host, his father, has invited the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. In order for us to hear God the Father say to us, friend, move up higher, which is the deepest longing that should exist in the human heart, Jesus says that there's only one way to recognize that we're poor in need of the Lord's true riches, that we're crippled in need of the Lord's help to straighten ourselves out, that we're lame in need of the Lord's grace to walk by faith, that we're blind in need of the light of faith to see things clearly. We must, in short, humble ourselves, for it's only the humble, Jesus insists, who will be so exalted. These are very hard and challenging words in our culture, which so much prizes human exaltation. We see it in the ever-growing number of award shows, indulging the egos of those in film, television, and music, giving out awards for best actors, actresses, singers, bands, directors, producers, graphic artists, film editors, hairstylists, sound mixers, and so many others. We see it in the honors we give to the most intelligent students, to the best-looking women in pageants, to the most successful sales reps, or to the most valuable players, even to the best-groomed dogs. So many of us have been raised with the desire not only to be the best, but to be acknowledged as the best, that if begrudgingly we recognize we're not the best, sometimes we have a crisis. We at least want to be better than those we know. But to all of us in this culture, Jesus says to us in words that will come right before the gospel in the Alleluia verse, learn from me, for I'm meek and humble of heart. Jesus' whole life is a lesson of humility, and he wants each of us to turn to he wants to turn to each of us and say to us, "Follow me." Jesus was so humble that he took on the form of a slave to serve us rather than to be served, to wash our feet, to become obedient to human authority, and even to allow himself to be mistreated, mishandled, and murdered by his own creature, also that he might save us. He humbled himself, and God the Father exalted him forever. So he says to us in this, follow me. And if we do this, if we imitate and enter into his humility, then we'll enter into his exaltation. Becoming humble is easier said than done. We first have to have a clear grasp of what humility is and isn't. Humility comes from the Latin word humus, which means the ground or the dirt. We have to have both of our feet firmly planted in the soil. That first foot, we could say, reminds us that we're dust and under dust we shall return. We shouldn't be self-exalted. But the second foot helps us to look up to see what our real nature is, where God has blown into us the breath of life. To use an image of St. Paul, we're vessels of clay carrying within an immense treasure, that gift of the soul and the gift of so many graces that God has given us. To be humble doesn't mean that we're losers, but it also doesn't mean that we're self-inflated means, consistent with the overall message of the gospel, that we never forget where we've come from and remember the greatness that a relationship with God confers. That's what humility is. Let's 
ask how we can grow in it. The first is to recognize the great treasure that, of love that God has for each of us. Many times we seek for honor in this world, we seek for status, because we don't recognize just how esteemed we are in God's eyes. The more we ponder who we really are, the less we need to be acknowledged by others. Second, we need to avoid pride, conceit, and ambition for ourselves to succeed at others' expense. That's what this Sunday's Gospel will be all about. Third is to recognize others' greatness. When we recognize the way God looks at others, that no one is a mere mortal, then it helps us to be able to serve and love them better, and also to look at who we really are as well, and our great dignity. The fourth practice is the sacrament of penance. There's no better way to fight pride than humbly to examine our conscience, to see that we're not who we want to be, or who God wants us to be, then go on our knees and humbly get it all out. The fifth is to accept suffering and humiliation, which allows us very fast to grow in humility, because this is the school of the cross. Sixth is humble prayer, like the tax collector in another part of the gospel, who doesn't think we're owed anything by God, but goes before him with open hands, poor, knowing that God loves filling those hands. Last is the Holy Eucharist. Jesus became so humble, not just that he took on our human nature and allowed himself to be crucified. He went even further in hiding himself under the appearances of bread and wine so that we could literally eat him and become him whom we receive. This Sunday, as we go to consume Jesus in Holy Communion, let us ask him for ourselves and for others, O Jesus, meek and humble of heart, make our hearts humble like yours. God bless you. Thank you so thank you so much, Father Landry, for doing that for us again, yet again this week. It's such a wonderful preparation for Sunday. Um, you can listen to Father listen or read Father Landry's homilies on his website, CatholicPreaching.com. And to our listeners, I would suggest if you want to grow in humbleness, try to start a radio slash podcast. <laughs> It's been, you know, Father Landry always gives a chance to reflect and, and meditate, and I think he shows um, the importance of humility, and we've seen that in Cardinal Pell here, a prince of the church who has been, in, in our opinion, unjustly incarcerated, convicted, humiliated, and yet he's humble, humble before God, and shows, um, I guess, what his prayers and his sacrifices can do to heal our ailing church. So true, Andrea. You've been listening to Conversations with Consequences, a service of the Catholic Association. I'm your hostess, Greasy Christie, joined today by my colleague, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer, and our friend, Phil Lawler, who was so kind as to talk to us about the sad case of Cardinal Pell. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, Conversations with Consequences. <laughs>